This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. My, wasn't that something? Uh, I don't think in all my years of attending uh, seminars like this, I don't think I've ever heard one with quite the remit and breadth that uh, that we're hearing today. So I would like to uh, thank all of all the speakers for their wonderful uh, talks, for taking the time to record them, and in particular, for spending their lives on learning the material that uh, we just heard. Uh, I think it will be very, very important. Um, I have uh, electronically with us my co-convener of this uh, seminar, Leslie Ayala, and she, you will hear from her um, uh, when she uh, asks the first question. And so now, um, and uh, it will be the uh, audience's privilege to ask the questions, and it will be the speaker's privilege uh, to give, uh, give their answers. So I would like now to ask all the speakers to join me and unmute their cameras and microphones so that everyone may see him, see them. Um, and I would just like to add one final remark. Um, I think today uh, you're hearing the uh, beginning of a new phase in the development of what I would call the science of the human condition. And uh, so I, and I, I can't uh, overestimate uh, the significance of what, the beginning of what we might hear as this debate unravels about the, uh, the Anthropocene. And we have to thank uh, Paul Crutzen uh, for uh, inventing a word that crystallizes our curiosity about it. And the final thing I should like to add is that the Carter staff have been absolutely wonderful in supporting uh, some of us uh, who need help uh, in, in the running this seminar. And I would just like to thank them for all their work. Uh, Leslie, are you ready with a question? Yep, I, uh, I sure am. And uh, be, be, before we start, I'd also like to thank everyone for wonderful and very provocative talks. Uh, we have a lot of uh, questions from the audience. So I think that the discussion is going to be extremely interesting. And the first one is for Dr. Ramanathan. Uh, the uh, question reads, in debates about the climate crisis, it seems that a lack of knowledge information is often deemed responsible for our, our inaction. Do you think that uh, decision makers really lack the right information? Or is there another reason for, for instance, willful ignorance? Who still needs to be convinced that the Anthropocene climate change is virulent and has already produced irreversible changes in the Earth system? Uh, what, is more what is the more convincing argument to these stakeholders? A prospect for profit in green technologies or a viable future of our home? So we, uh, it's a long question, but please, please go ahead. Uh, uh, thank you. I honestly don't have the 
inroads into what kind of information our leaders are getting. Uh, there are two I'm a little bit familiar with. One is uh, Pope Francis, and the second is our current US president. I'm involved in a White House group on climate actions. I think the issue uh, to me is the public which lack the knowledge about how urgent the situation is. I think everyone is now uh, informed and agree that the climate is changing. And even the skeptics now have figured out that the climate change is from human activities. So I think we have crossed that barrier. But the key issue is that very few I have talked to really understand the urgency of the situation. I would include even the scientists. So for the first time, the ground has been broken on that by the IPCC uh, report, the working group too, on adaptation and vulnerability, et cetera. You know, the working group one is by scientists and they are still surrounding themselves in so many caveats and scientific uncertainties. But the working group too is primarily from social scientists and they have clearly and unambiguously painted a, a clear picture of the urgency. And uh, hopefully that would get across. But what I think, Leslie, is that we need a climate education for all, the general public. And I think from there, it should percolate to the leaders. But let me just say that no action I have seen, either from the Paris summit or the recent one in Glasgow, really captures the urgency. The actions agreed upon and proposed, there's a huge gap between those and what needs to be done. So there is a big, big gap between what should be done and what can be done. Thank you very much, Ram. It's uh, my turn now to pose the second question. Uh, these are, have been submitted to the, uh, the, the uh, uh, Q&A screen. And uh, so I'm uh, going to pose one uh, for Jonah Western from Wayland Myers. And uh, this is, uh, this is part of the new science of the human condition. Uh, the question has a preamble. Eleanor Ostrom's extensive study of groups that manage their commons in a life-sustaining way concluded that eight conditions, traits, or practices were what made their resource management successful, the so-called Ostrom's eight. So for Jonah, uh, here's the question. We are talking about preserving life sustainability of the total planetary biosphere. So a global scale group effort must be made. And that requires global scale cooperation, which is uh, questionable. Do you believe the Ostrom 8 are scalable uh, to that global scale? I, I do think that the Ostrom 8 rules have been shown to, to be very universal whether it's parking lots in the US, whether it's the air bands you use, people have to 
have some common set of rules to avoid chaos. Now think about the rules of traveling on a road. You travel on the right-hand side, the left-hand side, you stop at stop signs. You accept those as normal and it allows business to go ahead. That's also part of the Ostrom rules. So here's the problem. I think the Ostrom rules really derive from small-scale communities which are close-knit, closely connected with their environment. And many of those, as Ostrom has shown, and even my own work has shown, can really be very effective. But how do you go beyond your sensory perceptions, beyond your community, to impacts, which we call externalities, for which we have no knowledge? So first of all, science has been very critical in creating that external linkage to the impact we have on a global scale. But politics, because it's confined within national boundaries, has not yet the jurisdiction to act on a global scale. So I think two things are needed simultaneously. First of all, we have to act globally in order to contain the impact we have through pollution. And I think that can work and has worked very effectively. But at the next level, we have to have a national jurisdiction which addresses things like pollution. And I think, again, if you look at the success of the US in reducing nitrogen oxides and sulfur dioxides and so on, it's reduced 90% and been effective. But frankly, who cares if they have a smoke rack uh, which emits carbon dioxide in the outer atmosphere? Who's going to take jurisdiction of that? So I think the weak governance we have is United Nations, collaborative action, and so on. And it's going to make a really tough challenge to close that gap. And I think there are two ways of doing it. First of all, the consequences of our action have to be feelable to us. And I think to add to what Ram has just said, for the first time ever, IPPC has just told us what the problems are, but we're beginning to feel it in extreme weather, in floods, in droughts, and so on and so forth. But it has to go further than that. We have to have those international actions, which has just taken place in Nairobi incidentally, to do something about plastic. But plastic is still something that we can feel in everyday life. So I think the big challenge of this meeting and many others is to say, how do we make those connections at the global level to be realizable and to put them into international policy and international action? Uh, I have a quick follow-up question for, for Jonah. Um, do you think it's in human nature to be able to cooperate on the scale that we really need to, to, to cooperate to solve the problem? Yes, but it's, it's a long haul, as mm. I think we all know. Those things which affect us immediately, like pollution in the cities in the US, we can act on because we do feel them and they affect us. But these larger externalities, I think, are such a big challenge beyond the scale at which we've ever acted. So it's a question of how we make them more immediate. And I think the science has been a, bit of, uh, a very important part of that. But think about how much money has been put into communicating that science into the general public. Is it 5%? Is it 10%? So unless we invest more in communicating not only what the problems are, but also the solutions that we need, I think it's going to be a long haul. But I do agree with the statement that was said before. We have to invest much, much more in communication and not only communication, but linking action 
and consequence. And uh, a question for, for, for the panelists. Is, uh, is there anyone that would like to pipe in on, on this discussion? Do, do you all agree with Jonah? Well, I can, uh, a couple of things that occur to me as problems all the time are the marshmallow test. When we have trouble holding on and not wanting the marshmallow in 10 minutes, when the marshmallow is something that happens in 20 years. And another problem is what's sometimes called environmental amnesia. And that is each generation grows up with a different sense of what the environment should look like. And I always describe this by uh, speaking as if there was a cartoon with a, um, a forester talking to some tourists in front of a redwood tree that's 20 feet tall and saying, of course, there were rumors they were bigger at one point. So we have to, those are two difficulties and really hard difficulties that I come to my mind. This is Charlie here. You know, um, when I entered the physics world in the middle of the last century, it was thought that the knowledge itself was sufficient, that it would motivate its own action. And uh, this uh, point of view, um, I think we have learned otherwise that uh, you need to put, you need specific provisions to put knowledge into action. And that's what uh, one of the tasks, of course, that Cartan and others do. And I've spent some time on a concept called knowledge action networks, which the connection, connected groups of people and decision makers that actually understand and take knowledge and put it into useful action. Um, and so, uh, I'm of full agreement that you need to pay attention to the communication and the uses and the applications of knowledge and connecting with people whose job it is to put it into action, not only to create it, but it's, it starts with knowledge and it starts with a, a, the expansion of our consciousness that comes with knowledge. Anyone else want to comment? Okay. I guess I... Oh, There's a few comments. Uh, one is, I think one problem is also that people feel overwhelmed by the scale of the problem. And so they don't really know what they can do. Um, and that's why I often, as in this talk, talked about what things have actually been done. Because if people have a sense that there's something that they can do and see examples of it, um, then um, then they're, I think they're much more likely to act. I think, you know, this really year after year of sort of doom and gloom news has kind of paralyzed the public in terms of knowing how to proceed. Um, and it's not to say that we can't, we have to convey the urgency, but we also have to convey the solutions, I guess is what I would say. And then the second thing is that um, in terms of, you know, going back to Ostrom's eight and just sort of conservation in general, and this is not just climate change, this is also biodiversity conservation, because I feel really we're facing two crises here. We're facing a biodiversity crisis and a climate crisis. And, you know, they often, it, there's a whole book written on with something like this title, but, you know, the, it goes along the lines of uh, progress moves at the speed of trust. And, and what that is trying to say is that in the absence of trust, it's very hard to, to uh, actually make any progress at all. And, almost every single success that I've read about has um, uh, involved people trusting each other to take what's at the outset sometimes seems like a scary step forward. And so 
and this is a kind of on, on the one hand that's a depressing uh, realization because at least in some societies, including the United States, trust seems to be at an all-time low. But it is something that we really need to work on because without it, I don't think we will escape our quandary. And uh, I, I, I see, see that Martin Rees has his hand up. Would you, you, do you want to chime in? Okay. Thank you very much. Um, I think one point is that scientists don't have a direct influence on politicians who care more about what the average voters think. And that's why it's so important that we should enlist the support of charismatic individuals who can make the public care. And uh, I'd like to just mention four very different people who've been very influential. One is um, Pope Francis. The other is David Attenborough. The other is Bill Gates. And the other is Greta Thornburg. Those four people, very different from each other, have really energized public opinion. And we need more people like that to persuade politicians that the public cares. And only then uh, will the public be taken notice of by the politicians, d- despite the pressure of more urgent business. Would uh, anyone else like to comment on the panel? I will just say that it's a shame that what we need is more younger people. You're, you're mentioning people that are quite old. It would be great to have some more younger people now that are really rising to that. Yeah. It's an important point. The next question we have is for, for Michael Perguginen. Uh, and uh, the question is, do, do you think we will be able to meet our increased demand for food by 2050? And if so, are you aware of any recent advances that might get us there? Um, yeah, that, that's that. Thank you very much for that question. That, that's an interesting question. And there's certainly a lot of both global breeding and biotechnology efforts to continue to increase our food supply. Um, there, there are several, and, and some of them are kind of blue sky ones. For example, transforming the photosynthetic machinery. Uh, of many of our crop plants so that they're more efficient in harvesting uh, sunlight and converting that sunlight into carbon, uh, which is what we need uh, to increase calories. Um, so, 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 so that's an effort that's going around. And it really is a little bit of race for uh, a race here um, in time. Can we meet those goals uh, so that we can actually feed a world that is going to reach uh, the capacity of 11 billion people in, in by about 2050. Um, will it work is the big question. Um, one of the things that's pro- problematic here too uh, is that the overall international investment in research in agriculture is actually very low. Uh, compared, for example, to biomedical uh, research. And, and of course, we need to invest in biomedical research. We need to invest in other things, obviously, climate change mitigation and adaptation, conservation, and so on. But agricultural research uh, has been uh, has been pretty much stagnant. It's uh, the research uh, monies that have been spent over the last uh, decade or so. Um, and there, this, this needs to be changed. If, in fact, over the last decade, I have personally observed that our, while the science uh, behind agriculture, the basic science has been advancing uh, quite a bit, some of our resources and infrastructure um, 
to, to continue that research has been deteriorating. So we'll see if we can make it. I, I, I'm a hopeful person. I'm a very optimistic person. I think we can do it. And I, as I said, I can see several very interesting, almost blue sky projects out there. And the, the one that, as I said, comes to mind, even though it's not my own research, is um, the, need, the need to re-engineer photosynthesis uh, in our crop plants. I think that that has the potential to become uh, revolutionary if, it is, if we can do that. Right, and uh, Vanessa, this question also overlaps with your interests. Uh, do, do you have anything you want to put into the conversation here? Yeah, thanks for that. Um, I think one, uh, you know, in thinking about the, the animal aspects of agriculture, um, and sort of my presentation talked about this issue where, you know, one of the major sources of uh, methane, which is, um, uh, you know, a contributor to warming climate, not as potent as CO2, but uh, uh, not as, uh, you know, not as uh, prevalent as CO2, but more potent. So it has 28 times or so the, the potency of CO2 and uh, livestock being, a, a, you know, a major source of methane. And of course, the growing demand uh, for um, livestock, right? Uh, to feed us uh, to, to, you know, into the future. Um, and so that's an area as well where there's a lot of um, interesting and potentially promising technologies that may allow us to uh, mitigate the amount of methane that's produced uh, by livestock. So um, research into managing the feed, feed additives that might reduce uh, methane release um, from microbes within the gut of these livestock, as well as managing the microbes themselves. That's um, emerged as a really interesting uh, potential place where livestock emissions, uh, methane emissions might be mitigated uh, because of our expanding understanding of essentially the microbiome um, and how we might manage it to uh, mitigate some of these um, rising costs. And that would allow us, right, to maintain the level of livestock production that's mm. um, required to feed uh, a, a growing human population. Mm. And what, 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 what do you feel uh, about this trend that seems to be happening now where people are eating less meat, at least in the U.S. and the U.K.? Is this going to have any significant effect or yeah, I mean, I think that that's a really uh, a positive trend. Um, but uh, one issue, right, is that, you know, do we solve one problem by creating another? Um, uh, and so I think that's that we really need a holistic perspective. Uh, one thing from Michael's talk where he talked about the role of rice. So uh, and, uh, you know, the role of plant-based products in also driving uh, methane emissions. So I think a holistic perspective is important. Um, and just to go back to one thing, um, I think Nancy talked about trust. And I also think that we have some of the knowledge, but education is key. I think the education and just the dissemination of the knowledge we have is limited to uh, really a small fraction of people um, mm -hmm. and understanding how to communicate some of these issues 
to people more broadly and, you know, no matter where they are, um, I think is an important key to, to you know, making, right, to solving this really massive problem. Michael's comment uh, stimulated in me uh, some thoughts uh, coming from the climate world. Um, I've noticed recently an evolution in the sentiment of the, of the people who've been dealing with climate change science for quite a while. And that is that there's a general sense that, um, that we're making progress, um, that the issue now has changed from what to do uh, or will people even listen to the fact that they're now beginning to listen. We're beginning to see major changes in, uh, in uh, infrastructure, particularly for automobiles. We're beginning to see action. And so now the issue has changed to the Michaels issue. We're in a threatening situation. Can we do it fast enough? Not we know what to do. We think that there are enough people out there that will do it if we can enable them. Can they do it? Can it be done in time to save us from serious problems? And uh, I don't, I don't know whether other people have views on that, but I think I've noticed this, a small change, but a definite change in the attitudes of my colleagues. But can I just interject very quickly about that? Because just like the climate crisis, uh, this food security crisis, people seem to be thinking it's in the future. And of course, we're trying to tell people that this crisis is now. Uh, the food security issue, we keep on talking about trying to feed 11 billion people by 2050 as something in the future. But the food security crisis is actually real. And just to show it today, I didn't have time to put it in my presentation, but the price of wheat has nearly doubled over the last week. Why? Because Ukraine and Russian wheat production is going to be, and trade is going to go down. So that's how fragile our international food security system is, that in, in what's a conflict right now in a relatively small area, you know, the size of France, uh, has a major impact on the price of a major food crop. It's, it's, right now, it's up, it's, it's up 80% from where it was a week ago. So our food, our food infrastructure is actually not as robust as we would want it to be. So if, if I can uh, inject a view from the African perspective, the biggest challenge for world food production is going to be in the continent Africa, which has the largest portion of growth over the next half century to century. The greatest poverty is in Africa. The greatest insecurity in food supply is in Africa. So how do we address that problem? I think if you look at the gap between the productivity which is possible in the African continent compared with Asia and what is actually produced, that gap is about fourfold. So I think there are immediate things we can do to improve the agricultural productivity in the African context. But that means providing access to markets, which are at present limiting. It means improving access to international markets. So we have a reverse flow of produce, if you like. But I think one thing that is extremely important is communication again. And I can't say enough that the internet has allowed many African farmers and in fact herders to look at techniques which they have yet had available, how to improve the fertility of the land through various means which they don't have at the moment, how to access new crops. 
So I think that if we look at this enormous gap between where the population growth is going to occur and where the deficit is going to occur, we do need a revolution. But it's not going to be a green revolution of the sort that we've seen in Asia. It's going to be revolutionizing what essentially has been a subsistence economy into a market economy of a different sort. Market economies that really get the, the majority of the sale price back to the community rather than being captured by the big intermediaries at the moment. So I think that that yawning gap will be filled. And I, I will add another point. I think the African farmer is actually a lot more receptive to ge genetically modified organisms than most others because they realize in adopting new forms of crops which are more adapted to arid conditions, the huge increase in their income makes the difference between poverty and progress. So I think that we have a huge gap to fill, but part of it is through conventional better agriculture and part of it is through GMO. I'm gonna change the tone a little bit um, and warn Martin Rees that you have a fan out there. His name is David Brint. And he writes uh, a series of things that I will read to you and the, and the audience, and you can figure out which one you want to answer. But uh, it ties together some of the things that we've said. Bryn says, he's the author of a book called Earth. Bryn says, David Western makes a powerful point that humanity appears capable of sapient awareness of planetary health as reflected by this very conference. This sapient ability to have such insight may or may not save us. But in a galactic context, such satiable foresight may be very rare. The implications of mind burdening, mind boggling, putting an extra burden on us to grow up. His far reaching view is much appreciated. And especially in the perceptive understanding of the cautionary and preparatory value of science fiction. I love Martin's renaming of space tourism. Perhaps this is the one you comment on. It's as extreme sports adventurers. It's now exactly 100 years since the barnstorming era featured thousands of humans eagerly and voluntarily risking their lives to advance aviation. Maybe something like that will work again. I'm paraphrasing. So Martin, would you like to comment on the remarks of your fan and, and maybe uh, uh, fill in a little bit? Um, yes, thank you very much. And uh, and hi, David. We have met and uh, talked about uh, whether we should try and communicate with aliens if they're out there, etc. Um, but um, I just like to say that um, thinking long term is something which uh, uh, we need to persuade politicians to do. And that's very hard. And I think one way in which astronomers can help, and I mentioned this in my talk, is uh, being aware that the future is at least as long as the past. People on the whole, um, even those who accept evolution, which is more than half in the US now, which is good news, um, they somehow think that we humans are the culmination, the top of the tree. And no astronomers can believe that, obviously, because so much more can happen in the future. Um, and of course, um, uh, if we do find evidence for life, somewhere out on an exoplanet. That will, of course, change people's perspective. Um, if uh, we find intelligent life, and I know this is something which you, David, have uh, thought about a lot, um, that will, of course, 
be transformative. Um, but I think uh, to widen our horizons and at the same time uh, care about what happens uh, to our children and grandchildren is very important. One point I make in my book is that it's slightly anomalous that uh, when we look at a cathedral, we look at something that was built several hundred years ago by people who um, uh, thought the world would only last another thousand years, whose horizons were very limited um, to their country, um, but they nonetheless built cathedrals that wouldn't be finished in their lifetime and which still inspire us many centuries later. On the other hand, uh, we don't plan even 50 years ahead. That seems a paradox, given that uh, we have horizons stretching billions of years ahead, but it's not a paradox for this reason. The reason is that in the Middle Ages, people may have thought the world might only last a thousand years, but they thought the lives of their children and grandchildren would be similar to theirs. So their grandchildren would appreciate the Finnish cathedral. On the other hand, although we have these vast cosmic horizons, I think we can't be at all sure of what people's lives will be like 50 years from now. And that, of course, is an impediment to uh, long-term planning. So I think that's the reason why we find it so hard to be, as it were, good ancestors. We're not quite sure what our descendants will want. There's a follow-up question for Rio Martian from the audience. And this says, your excellent talk raised a slew of issues that may cause the downfall of humans in the future years. In your mind, what is the most pressing, urgent of these issues facing our species currently? And what do you think we as ordinary people can or should do to combat it? Yes. Um, well, to be honest, uh, what worries me much is uh, a breakdown in social order caused by the cumulative effect of, uh, of bio-error and cyber-terrorism. I mean, we know we are dependent on uh, a complex interconnected society, and COVID-19 has made us aware of that. Think how much worse it would have been if the internet had failed during the COVID shutdown, for instance. Mm -hmm. And we've learned that we need to be more resilient. Um, it, we should leave spare capacity in our hospitals so they're not easily uh, overwhelmed, and we should not have our manufacturing dependent on long supply chains where a break in one link can disrupt things. So we ought to learn that um, uh, it, it may be um, economical to have our present system, but it's not resilient. We need to pay more to be resilient. Um, and um, I, I think I still worry about the risks of uh, disaffection caused by small groups and individuals. And of course, the only answer to that is to um, minimize the grounds people have for disaffection. We've talked about the problems of Africa. And of course, in Africa, um, the poverty gap between them and us in the North is getting wider. And they're not fatalistic about their fate now because uh, they do have the internet. They know what they're missing and uh, uh, they can travel more. So I think uh, that's why I mentioned in my talk that um, we need uh, the northern nations, especially those in Europe, to ensure that Africa doesn't fall behind and indeed also to help Africa to uh, um, make the transition to clean energy, even though, unlike your country and mine, it doesn't need more per capita energy 
uh, we don't need more ca- per capita energy, but uh, Africa does. And we've got to make sure it can afford um, to leapfrog directly to clean energy, just like it leapfrogged to mobile phones without having landlines, and not build coal-fired power stations like uh, China has been doing. Because uh, if I'm putting the numbers, there'll be 4 billion people in India and sub-Saharan Africa by mid-century. If they uh, use uh, five tons per year per person of CO2, which is less than China now does, that would be about 40% of the world's present emissions. And that's why if we, in advanced technological countries, try to develop clean energy and make it cheaper, our motive is not just to meet net zero targets ourselves, but surely to uh, collaborate with the developing world so they can. In my country, Britain, we are producing one or 2% of the world's emissions, but uh, maybe by helping the global south to develop clean and cheap energy, we can make more difference. Would any of the other uh, panelists like to chime in on what we, what we should be doing? I think um, Martin's point is a very good one. I would add that actually Kenya's generates already 80% of its electricity through non-renewables. That's geothermal, uh, solar, wind, and so on. And I think that if there's investment in cheapening a lot of these structures, it makes a difference. So let me just give you one example. It's, it's very expensive to install infrastructure over great distances, particularly in the rural areas in Africa. But there are groups that have got together, let's say 70 households, which agree to create and circulate within the community their own solar energy, using little chips about who's generated how much, how much is bought by other people and so on. That means a huge number of communities can at a very cheap price go off the grid completely. And I have to say that we often live in a world of darkness in Kenya because because of the lack of uh, mains electricity. So I think the means are there. But I think the, the real point is that can we create this leapfrog technology? And my view is yes, because so many of the developing countries already have made the leapfrog to solar phones, for example. We only had 300,000 landlines until the cell phone came in. Now we have 40 million cell phones. And people can transmit money back to the rural areas. They can go on the cell phone and find out what businesses they can set up and so on. So I do agree with Martin. And I think that the demand is there. We now have to make sure that we can deliver for that demand. I have one that's somewhat related to the talk that I gave. This is from from Linda. It's a question that we all have and always comes up. It's always useful to review our, our recent thinking about it. It seems pretty obvious that if we want to continue human life on Earth as we have come to know it, population must not only stop increasing, but must decline. How can we start to achieve that? Well, just just one comment. It may not be that hard because um, uh, more than half of the nations already have a, a, a fertility rate below replacement level, um, 1.5 or 1.6 in, um, in many countries. And uh, so uh, if that is followed by 
sub-Saharan Africa in particular, then this uh, may solve itself. And uh, we wouldn't want a sudden decline, but uh, uh, a gradual decline, obviously, would be beneficial in a number of respects. So I think uh, the, this is the, an extra reason uh, why uh, it's very important to ensure that uh, Africa um, does uh, have the opportunity to go through the demographic transition. I was going to supplement that. Uh, I would just like to point out that 20 years ago, my thesis advisor chaired a committee for the National Academy of Sciences on the Board of Sustainable Development, which noted, just as Martin had, that the world is uh, fractionally and partially through a demographic transition, which it ought to be ought to complete be complete by the end of this century, if you believe. UN uh, forecasts. And uh, so there's interesting things about it. Um, first, um, the problem is finite. One does not see necessarily uh, the huge rates of population growth uh, continuing for more than another century. Um, that's, uh, that's the most important thing that I suppose you can say that we are on track and it is social and technological evolution that has put us on track to actually achieve a stable population. That's a first criterion for a sustainable society. But one question, of course, is whether we actually arrive at the end of this century with sustainable practices and sustainable philosophies. And so, um, so that's, that's the second part of the question. Uh, Will we get there? And uh, and will we? The problem is finite. We could solve it. The social advance is the reason, uh, and technological and and economic advance are, are all contributors to this outcome. And so the thing that we want is almost accomplishing what we would like to see. And uh, so uh, our task is ahead of us. And Nancy says it likes to we uh, would like to see positive outcomes. I think the first thing is a positive viewpoint. The problem is finite. Uh, it will end in the century, and the uh, the next descendants the century from now will say the world has different problems. Sorry, Charlie, can I make a comment? Sure. Definitely, I think the population issue is. Uh, in the center of all these discussions, but when it comes to climate change, the issue is really consumption. You know, the poorest 1 billion, their contribution to CO2 is half a percent. And compare that with the top 1 billion, I think all of us are in that category, 38%. And there is another more ethical issue here Many of us, including me, uh, you know, predicted or projected that we're going to cross the degree and a half warming in about eight years from now, give or take a couple of years. IPCC was holding back, but the recent report, they also agree that it's going to happen around 2030. And given the increase in the frequency of extreme heat events, they've increased by 180%, and the droughts, so that poor, if there is a cliff at one and a half, the poorest one billion who had nothing to do with this are going to go down that cliff. 
we will, the rest of us will follow over 30, 40 years. So this issue, Charlie, I've gone to uh, UNFCCB. This is the issue I tried to get Pope Francis push, and he came with the uh, famous statement, cry of the earth should be heard with the cry of the poor. But why are we not talking about that? Isn't it, uh, I completely agree with Martin, giving green energy access to the poorest 1 billion and the other 2 billion are pretty close to the poorest 1 billion. Is in our own self-interest. If we don't give them green energy, I am sure the oil companies would be happy to sell them the coal, yep. right? And even if they catch up with the below the world average, as Martin said, their emission is going to be 20 billion tons, not now, mm-hmm. 20 years from now, when we are going to be crossing two degrees. Yes. So that will assure us the catastrophic three, four degree warming. So we don't have to do it for egalitarian grounds, just for pure selfish reasons. Yeah. We have to give them clean energy access. I myself put the, I I agree with you that the important thing for climate change is in fact energy consumption, but I do think that that, um, if there weren't any living things on the planet, we wouldn't care about the climate change. And so I think the two are connected, that we do not understand all the forces that um, that determined, uh, poly, determined uh, um, population, but I do think that the kind of society that you want to live in and creating the kind of society you want is a necessary, and living in one is a necessary one for a stable society and population. I think the two actually go together. We can't solve them separately. Right. Okay, uh, we, we, we can shift gears to, uh, a little bit, and then this is a question for Mark, and it says, what in your opinion is the most, is the most important lesson that humans can learn from ant societies? Uh, one thing you'll find, I, I mentioned my uh, article, Ants and the Art of War, and I've been looking at warfare, and uh, one thing that's really remarkable about us is... Uh, Obviously, we're much smarter than ants, and so the comparisons are still interesting. But uh, is the relative uniqueness of the fact that we can be uh, friendly towards other societies. We can have best friends in other societies. That's not possible in any of the 14,000-plus species of ants. Nowhere. And it's relatively rare among other animals. So bonobos can cross their territorial border and groom together for the day. They still go back to their same territory at the end of that day. So they still have a sense of belonging to a particular group. And so they have that opportunity as well, as do dolphins and a few other things. But this capacity for making friends or enemies out of our neighbors gives us opportunities. The trick is, in times of stress, uh, whether we turn too quickly into making our uh, neighbors our enemies. And that often happens. I'll just go on to say I I was given the privilege of writing an article for the Journal of Organization Design, which is a business journal comparing ant colonies 
to human organizations. And there's all kinds of interesting things we can learn from the differences and similarities, um, uh, including uh, the value of having a relatively flat organization, as some companies are doing now, and uh, uh, the potential for building uh, all kinds of structures, and uh, including social structures, which ants and humans do far more than chimpanzees. And I like to say that uh, we may be related to chimpanzees and bonobos closely, but modern humans are much more like ants than we are like chimpanzees with their complex architecture, infrastructure, um, highway rules, moving goods back and forth in, in ways that make sense. All kinds of things happen just because of the scale of those societies. Uh, a chimpanzee doesn't have to worry about uh, social cleanliness or public health issues. Ants do. They have health squads in some species. So looking at how those things arise in ants and things like domesticated agriculture can tell us basic things about the structure of how large groups work together, whether they're brainless like ants or relatively brainless or humans. So that's just a general philosophy there. I have one that, thank you, from, from, from Vivek Babur Gurdjie from India, from Jaipur. Professor Moffat and Professor Ayala, you're still on the spot. Uh, how could evolutionary and other biological sciences instill courage using analogies and model systems uh, in regulators, encouraging regulators of economic systems to place monetary importance on the institutions of collective action that are aimed to address the classic, classic tragedy of commons problem. That, that one broke my myrmecologist's brain. <laughs> I will say though, and in general, one of the things that we're dealing with in all these uh, questions are matters of group identity. That's why I brought up societies and what they are and other kinds of group identity issues mm -hmm. are going to have to be circumvented because as we're seeing with politics the last few years, group identification overrides logic a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. Expressing an affinity to the group overrides evidence of global warming. And uh, so that's uh, another reason I mentioned in my talk that it would be great to have perhaps a, a session or symposium on group identities as it's found in psychology and studied in psychology and how it uh, could apply to anthropology and our histories. Anyway, that has nothing to do with the question, so I just... Well, I, I, I mean, go, 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 going back a, uh, a bit to the question, uh, I, I, I really wonder whether it's in... It's within human psychology to cooperate at the level that we're going to be required to in order to solve the problem. I mean, your uh, ant analogy, uh, I think, is very good because certainly there's uh, a number of similarities between ant society and human society, as you say, cleanliness and uh, everything else. But uh, does it extend to the point where they can't get along with the other? And, you know, I, uh, I uh, personally, from a human evolution point of view, until very recently, we were working in very small, disconnected groups. And uh, I don't I want to be a pessimist with this, but I don't see 
a positive way moving forward that can solve the problem as quickly as we might need to solve it. I mean, that, that, that doesn't mean we shouldn't work on it, but we need to come up with a way that we can uh, uh, you, 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 unite people while it's still, there's still time to do something positive about it. Um, can I can I just interject uh, yeah. really quickly? Um, but that that's a, a really good point. And I think what uh, our goal as the human species is to actually find a solution to many of these problems before natural selection will find a problem will solve the problem for yeah, us. Exactly. Because if if our population continues to increase and we are uh, we are living in an unsustainable manner, at one point natural selection is just going to kick in. And that's mm -hmm. when we do not want that to happen. Right. Mm -hmm. I'd just like to add a, a comment. Um, how do you instill courage in uh, regulators? Um, it, it takes a, a village, probably more than a village, but I should like to report on some encouraging things that are happening with a colleague of uh, Martin's and mine, Parthidas Gupta, uh, an economist and well-known economist who has in recent months been asked by the UK treasury to uh, in fact address this question and how do you put economic value on biodiversity and compromises thereof. And this is a, a beginning cultural evolution, I think that will play itself over the coming years, but is very, very important. And I'm very encouraged that it's happening. Shifting gears quite a bit now, there, there's a question for Nancy Noten. Um, how early did human ancestors begin interacting with the ocean? And we can also add here, is, is there any example from the past of humans overexploiting the ocean? Um, well, the, this is really a question almost for an anthropologist, an archaeologist rather than a biologist. <laughs> but um, certainly there's evidence of coastal peoples going back for as long as there are, you know, as long as there is an archaeological record of people living in the ocean, they were they were using the ocean. Mm -hmm. So it goes back to the deep recesses of human history. Um, there are certainly uh, examples of uh, over exploitation. Although I, uh, you know, and I think the whole idea of the so-called, you know, the, you know, that, that indigenous people never make bad decisions is, uh, is not really accurate. On the other hand, it is true that many indigenous societies have systems in place that regulate use in such a way that it leads to sustainability. So, um, I think more, I think there are more examples of indigenous people using resources sustainably than the reverse, in part because those that don't, um, don't, aren't around anymore. I have a, an example that's fun, which is uh, Socotra Island off of Yemen, where I've spent several weeks. And that's the most biodiverse island in the world outside of the Galapagos and Hawaii, though no one's heard of it. And both Hawaii and the Galapagos have had a large number of extinctions, and Socotra has none, none recorded. And they've had goat herders living there for a thousand years. And those goat herders have managed across several tribes, different groups, to regulate where the goats go and how they're moving through that environment. And one of the uh, interesting things for 
me, and I wrote about this in an uh, article called Respecting Nature, Respecting People in Skeptics Magazine, is a frame of reference, which I think is helpful to me when I talk to other people. And that is we do tend to look at other people and animals in a hierarchy, right down to the cockroaches. And we uh, Westerners here, Americans, tend to think of, uh, we tend to frame things in terms of, well, people are like ants. Those people are like ants. And that frame of reference, as simple as it is, puts ants down in a lower level below us. And other people tend to think of things in the reverse way. They, tend, they will say ants are like people. And those, that frame of ref reference brings ants up to our level. And the interesting thing there is if you've been exposed to this point of view that uh, apes are like people, ants are like people or whatever for a few minutes uh, and you're uh, looked at afterwards, you will start saying, thinking of uh, immigrants more highly. It actually raises up the stature of immigrants, even though you hadn't talked about people because it's reduced the entire hierarchy. This is a very bizarre and simple sounding thing, but the way you express these things actually has a really strong psychological effect on our minds. So another interesting subject. Um, going back to Nancy's point, I, I think you have to work at two levels. One is a global level and the other is a local level. So my entire career has been devoted to finding out how in Eastern Africa, exceptionally compared with the rest of the world, we have wildlife thriving like nowhere you've ever seen. That's why we have such a big tourist industry. So what allowed those communities to live with wildlife? And it goes back to having a closed community, having a membership, and recognizing this strong link, which I write in my book called Eramatere. There's no word in Maasai for conservation, but there's a direct link between the welfare of the family, the survivorship of the herd, and the health of the land. And that extends all the way to wildlife, which is seen as second cattle in extreme periods. So you conserve those to avoid hunger during those periods of time. And the second one is mobility. The very fact that the Maasai can move around and follow the herds of wildlife and benefit from the green wave, and yet, conserve areas for the late dry season, which they use in a time of need. Those are really what Ostromo is talking about. But can we scale them up? Yes, we've done it very effectively. Using the Ambassador example, because I was head of the Kenya Wildlife Service, I was able to bring in policies in Kenya called Parks Beyond Parks, drawing from these local community successes, opening up channels for international donors to provide funding to set up community conservatives, as we call them. Now, today, we have more elephants than we had 30 years ago. We have more rhinos than we had 30 years ago for two reasons. First of all, we're able to get to the international community to stop the international trade in ivory and rhino horns, which is beyond our orbit. That's why bringing in the international communities and putting across the fate of the elephant bringing out the emotions of other people to conserve elephants makes a difference. But ultimately, the communities on the ground have to benefit in some way from living with elephants and rhinos. So the Parks Beyond Parks movement in Kenya, given funding by the European Union and others to help those communities which wanted to get involved in tourism and so on, has led to a remarkable turnaround. Today, our national parks occupy 8% of Kenya. 
our conservancies, as of the Parks Beyond Parks movement, which we launched in 1998, cover 11% of Kenya. We have more community rangers among the communities than the entire National Ranger Service. So again, it's finding out what works for communities, creating that incentive on the ground, but making sure that incentive returns to them. And it's not really overridden by these open world markets. So I think there are good signs. And, and I want to go back to Nancy's point. Oceans are fundamentally more difficult because they're open access. But if I'm not mistaken, some of the best examples of sustainable reefs have come from exactly those communities which have the same set of rules and closure. But if on the other hand, you don't limit the international um, long haul ships, which are creaming off the oceans, then it doesn't matter what we do at the local level, it's gonna be overridden by the international. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's certainly the case. Um, many traditional societies have mechanisms for using resources, which basically uh, make them sustainable. And what you're saying, I mentioned this briefly in my talk, the um, TERFs or the uh, territorial users' rights for fishers basically empower local communities to regulate um, their fishing effort as individual communes. And over and over again, I would say in ocean conservation, the message is if that if local people aren't essentially in control of the decision-making process and that if basically the role of government is to empower local communities rather than to tell them what they do. If it's, if it's a latter, the effort fails. And if it's a former, the effort has a much better um, chance of succeeding. And the Nature Conservancy, for example, where I sit on the global board is a lot of uh, what is being, I mean, it's huge effort in terms of uh, returning lands to indigenous communities uh, because the clear, you know, the data are clear that that is the best way to preserve biodiversity. And I think the same, I mean, I, I, I share that, I mean, there's, it's true that if, from the top down, you can write a law and get everyone to do everything perfectly in a sustainable fashion. That's the quickest way to do it. The reality is, however, that in many societies, that's uh, either ineffective or counter-effective and therefore you really have to have a bot. You have to pair top-down incentives with bottom-up empowerment to get the optimal result. Okay, uh, we're, we, we're coming up to the end of the Q and A period. I do, do, do. you have any more questions on your list, Charlie? I have one for Vanessa, and then I think we should probably uh, uh, close up. So, Vanessa, here's one for you. And this will bear on some of the other topics we've discussed. Obviously, there are advantages and consequences of introducing more antibiotics and other drugs to livestock animals in order to combat certain infectious diseases. Do you foresee any force of any sort of balance between using enough antibiotics to prevent infectious diseases and livestock in our food supply and using too much antibiotics, which can introduce antibiotics resistance and greater risk. Yeah, uh, thank you for that question. I'll try to <laughs> answer quickly since we're running out of time. But um, I think an experience from our history, right, has been that 
the overuse of antibiotics and other types of drugs have has led to a drug resistance problem, which then, you know, has negative impacts on our ability to control the diseases that we are trying to control. Um, so antimicrobial resistance writ large, uh, encompassing bacteria and other types of uh, parasites and pathogens of livestock, humans, and uh, other species um, has sort of had a complicated history. So I think uh, the, our, it seems that it will be problematic to rely on tools like drugs to address this potential feedback issue where diseases are increasing. So I think um, we kind of have to think holistically about this issue as well. And reliance on drugs is unlikely probably to help us mitigate the current uh, problem that we face. Well, thank you very much. Um, this discussion uh, could go on all day. And I think there, and it would continue into the night if uh, it wouldn't, we still would not lose people's uh, interest. But I, I, guess, I think we have to close it up. But I also think that this kind of discussion ought to go on for at least the next century amongst different groups. And uh, so with that, I, I think I invite you back to the next one of this nature. Um, and I'd like to thank, while I have them all here, I would like to thank two groups, our panelists and our audience who've contributed so many uh, interesting questions, most of which we didn't have time to answer. So I would like to th thank everyone who's participated. And of course, the, the uh, the very competent Carter staff who's guided us through this whole process. Um, so then uh, with that, uh, I'd like to call our session to an end uh, by inviting uh, Carter co-director, Margaret Schoeninger, who will give us the closing remarks. Yes, I'm Margaret Schoeninger and I'm one of the Carter co-directors. I um, can't tell you how much I've enjoyed today's presentations. Having the time to sit down and listen was wonderful, and I really enjoyed them all. And as Charlie said, we will be leading, following up on this with our subsequent, but I'll come to that in a minute. I first of all want to thank the speakers as he did. I, they were phenomenal, and I really appreciate your efforts. I also want to thank the audience's questions, which I thought brought out a lot of points and made a lot of points. I was uh, very impressed by the, the audience today. Uh, on behalf of the Catholic uh, Carta leadership, I want to thank the supporters of the symposium. These are Carta patrons, Ingrid Bernishka Perkins, Gordon Perkins. I'd also like to thank the Carta friends, Robert Stavros and Robert Madden. And I'd like to thank some Carta supporters, Carrie Steinbach and Sarah Newman. And I, having watched behind the scenes, I want to thank the Carta staff myself. Um, they are, were as usual, uh, um, just amazing for us. The colleagues at the Supercomputer Center, who you never see, uh, have also been extremely important for us. And uh, the UCSD TV, 
and our partner Salk Institute. All their support has allowed us the viewing of today's symposium, those of the past symposium, and believe it or not, we have reached 40 million views in, by the end of 2021, all because of all these people. And we hope you'll enjoy, join us again. I'm amazed at how it will lead into, Charlie wanted to see how it led into, and it will. It will lead in off from what we heard today. So we'll be hearing about mass extinctions, and we'll be hearing about something I'm really excited about. Again, this ants, um, because we have those ants here in San Diego. They're all over my kitchen right now. And uh, they also are ones that we're going to be talking about in terms of invasive species and what goes on there. We'll have genetic variation. We'll see the diminished genetic variation in endangered species. Also, today we heard about domestication, both of plants and of animals, and we're later going to be hearing about that in terms of how humans have really factored into that with fire as a basis. We're going to talk about water insecurity, and we're going to be talking about feeding 11 billion people. Um, global alteration of the nitrogen cycle is going to be part of this. Our alteration of the planetary microbiome, which was brought up a couple of times today, we'll be looking at chemical pollutants and how that affects human fertility. And we'll be talking about space debris. There was a little bit of this talked, sort of mentioned by Martin, and uh, we'll be following up on it later. So thank you very much. And on the behalf of Carta, I'm really proud to be a co-director here. Thank you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.